This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you do a thing that you've done a lot of and you have reached a certain level of competency at, you have a certain pleasure in knowing that you can do what you can do. And with this, I was constantly anxious and upset that I quote, didn't know what I was doing and didn't know whether I could do what I could do. Hello and welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. Who did you talk to this week? This week's guest is Rebecca Mead. She is, of course, a staff writer at The New Yorker, but I wanted to talk to her right now because she has a new book out, which is about returning to the UK after living in New York for 30 years. And what is the book called? It is called Homeland, A Memoir of Departure and Return. And it's Rebecca's third book, but it's the first time that she has written really a memoir. And it is about a big life change, uh, Mm -hmm. about a big uprooting and uh, a rerouting, if you like. And so I was really interested to hear how writing this book was different from the kind of writing that she does, you know, frequently for The New Yorker, but also how it was different from her other two books. And what do Slate Plus listeners have to look forward to this week? I asked Rebecca for a practical moving tip, if there was anything she regretted leaving behind, and for a piece of art that she thinks represents Britain as it really is today. I particularly like the practical moving tip part because I think that's advice that all of us can use even if we're not necessarily (laughs) feel like our our work is that creative. Everyone needs to find an easier way to move. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Other than hire someone. Yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So listeners, if you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Slate Plus members get zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus content on our show and other shows like The Waves and The Culture Gap Fest, and you get full access to the articles on Slate.com so you won't run into that pesky paywall. And last but not least, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. You can sign up today at Slate.com slash Working Plus. Now let's hear June's interview with Rebecca Mead. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. I'm very excited to be talking to Rebecca Mead today, a familiar name to anyone who reads The New Yorker. Rebecca, you have a new book out. What's it called and what's it about? It's called Homeland and it is a memoir of leaving the United States where I lived for 30 years and returning to the United Kingdom which is the country of my birth and my early youth, but not the country of my adulthood or my career or or really most of my life. So it's about returning to where I came from and the extent to which I do and don't recognise where it is that I'm from. And an examination really of what home is and what home means and things like that. Yeah. So I think this is your third book and your first was about weddings and I see Homeland, I don't want to be too reductive, but largely as a book about moving, which is another major life event, big, potentially traumatic, totally life-changing, but one that is much less written about than other rites of passage like marriage. Um, But it is also about dislocation and, and relocation and adjustment. So I wonder, do you think of it as a book about moving? I think of it as a book about movement more than moving, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm. When I moved back to London and was looking for a home to live in in London, um, I looked at a lot of houses and learned of this phenomenon called historic movement, which London consists of clay and all of London is built on clay. And many houses have moved on that (laughs) clay. They shift, they slide, they move around and... um, And so when you're looking to buy a house, as I was, you hear this phrase of historic movement from um, realtors saying to you, well, that's okay, it's historic movement, meaning (laughs) that it happened 100 years ago, the building isn't falling down currently, you're probably okay. Um, Reassuring. Well, (laughs) not at all reassuring. And, you know, I'd moved from Brooklyn, where I had a house that was built on granite. My, the realtor that sold me that house told me that the stone that of the foundations of my building was the same stone that had gone to build the Brooklyn Bridge. So it felt very solid. It felt very, felt very permanent. Mm. And, and then coming to London, having given up that house and given up that life and discovering that everything I was trying to build a new life upon was in motion constantly, in movement, that there was this sense of things not being stable. And, you know, that in a way was a very meaningful metaphor for me of Mm. of the instability of the larger political moment. I moved here in 2018. And just the sense of instability in my own life at this stage of midlife and 
wondering what to do next and where to go next or whether to go anywhere next. So I don't think it's it's definitely not a book about, you know, selling up one house and buying another yeah. one, although that, that <laughs> right. comes into part of it. But movement yeah. is a tremendously important idea for me and was a very important idea for writing this book. Wow. It, it The topic does feel really of the minute. I mean, immigration, emigration, moving from one country to another, there's nothing new about that. You know, I come from a place where, at least in my early childhood and a little bit before, so like the, the 50s, the early 60s, there was a ton of emigration. You know, people were more likely in the place where I grew up to have visited Canada or maybe even Australia than London because they had family members there or people they'd, you know, grown up with. And when people left, there was a sense that they might never see their family members again. My uncle, you know, saw his parents, I think, twice after he emigrated. And it wasn't because they had short lives, you know, they, they lived long lives, but he, he'd gone then. And I think for people from the developed world, and certainly those of us with a certain amount of privilege, it doesn't feel as permanent anymore. And especially in the days of like email and WhatsApp and Skype, you're not as distant, even if you're physically far apart. So that's a very long run up to ask you, what was your relationship with Britain when you were still in the US as a permanent resident and indeed eventually as a citizen? My relationship with Britain was quite emotionally distant, I think. I mean, I left when I was 21, not intending to leave forever. I intended to leave for what I thought was going to be a year. I went to NYU to do a graduate degree in journalism and thought I would be back in London, back in England shortly thereafter. But I fell in love with New York and I got a job and I built a life and so I, I returned to England frequently. I mean, I, I wasn't um, like your uncle, gone and gone for good. I came back two or three times a year, often for work, but often just to see my family. Uh, so the two were sort of, you know, the, it, it felt like there was a passage between mm -hmm. them that it was possible to make. And indeed, moving back to the UK was predicated upon this idea that, well, you know, we'll be able to go backwards and forwards. The only way that I could persuade myself to leave New York was in thinking that I'm not really leaving. I'm just slightly basing myself in a little bit of a distant yeah. position yeah. to it. But, um, you know, I, I felt that I, I was able to sort of hold both of them, but I had not planned to come back to England. In fact, I had, I think, probably planned not to come back to England to the extent that I thought about it. So how did you approach the writing process? At one point, did you become aware, oh, okay, I'm going to write a book about this experience? And kind of how did you establish a difference between just being aware that, oh, it would be good to write about this and, you know, making a commitment to this is going to be a book and, and obviously selling the book? Well, I had written an article for The New Yorker in advance of leaving very shortly before I left that was about having become an American citizen and then deciding to leave. And that was in the summer of 2018. And I wrote that piece in a kind of storm of emotion, of justification in some way, and, yeah. and wanted to give an explanation, wanted to give an account of myself of, mm -hmm. as to why it was that I was leaving. And I wrote it without asking an editor if they wanted to publish it. I just wrote it and then gave it to my editor and said, what do you, you know, yeah. would you like to publish it? Um, and they did. But, and that piece was a sort of 
uh, it was quite political. It was very upset. It was very angry about what was happening in the United States at that moment and my fears about what was happening and my sense of betrayal in a way of having become an American. And here I am, and there are these terrible things being done in my name or what I saw as being terrible things um, mm-hmm. being done in my name. Uh, you know, but I also had to explain why I was leaving and, you know, why, why I wasn't staying on the barricades right. or whatever. Um, so it was also, you know, a sort of questioning about what would it be like for me and my family to return to the UK where I come from. Mm-hmm. And it was really uh, out of writing that piece, I decided to write a book and committed to writing a book, but without knowing exactly what the book was going to be. But I knew it wasn't (laughs) going to be a continuation of that. It wasn't going to be as polemical. It wasn't going to be as explicitly political. I didn't want to do that. I felt like that would... I'd said that. Mm -hmm. I didn't need Mm -hmm. to say that over again. And what I wanted to do instead was to capture something of that feeling of strangeness and newness and noticing that there is when you go to a place that's new, even though I was born in London, spent the first three years of my life, almost none of which I remember here, and... I wanted to capture that, the stories around that and the emotions especially around that experience. And so the book, um, that was, you know, what I felt. I felt if I didn't write it down, it would be gone and I would never be able to capture it again or explain it to anybody. And so in a way, this was just a way of figuring out why I had done this insane thing that I did. Yeah. I'm curious about the things you chose not to write about. Um, One thing that struck me, for example, is that there isn't a ton about how the people you were close to in the US, your friends, your colleagues, your neighbours, responded to your telling them that you were moving. You know, you talked about kind of you and your husband talking to your son. Um, But I don't think there's a lot of about those other partings. Um, And I doubt that's because, oh, it was completely uneventful. So what were the things that you decided that you just weren't going to get into? I think there are always things that you decide you're just not going to get into. And that's what makes it different from a letter or a diary or something else. I'm just holding up the book. It's it's 250 pages, not 5,000. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, I very much did. I I, I did not want to write a book that was like state of the nation in the UK or the US. I'm not I'm not qualified to do it. I'm not interested in doing it. I, I mean, and I think, you know, not including the the conversations I had with family and friends and so on in the US, um, it wasn't interesting to me to tell that story and to, yeah. you know, recount those justifications or explanations or yeah. tearful partings or whatever. Um, it was much more interesting to me to try to reckon with the with the new place and the, and the and the kind of, you know, and to think about the history of both cities and my own family's history Mm, in mm, London mm. and, you know, to explore things that that were new to me. Yeah. You just mentioned your family and that was a really interesting aspect of the book that, you know, when you, as you say, you you had been born there, you didn't grow up there, but your ancestors, your parents had, your grandparents. Um, And so there is this kind of triggering of, of family history, family memories, perhaps. Um, but there then were other kind of things that, that came up, other memories, if you will, that were not entirely family related. Um, but that things that you, I don't know if it's not just noticed after 30 years away, but just that seem very different. Um, 
I think in a weird way, I'm, I'm asking you what surprised you about your return. You know, the amazing thing, I was in New York for so long that, you know, every street corner, it felt, had a memory associated with it, which were those passionate memories of my youth, you know, the first job, you know, that kiss, that argument, that, yeah. um, you know, that sense of longing, um, that outfit, those shoes, that coat, you know, things that somehow stick in your memory, like photographs, even though I don't have photographs of them. I can walk around Manhattan and, and now and Brooklyn too, and can see my life and my history in every block and also see places where my life and my history has been erased because mm. that building mm. that I never thought would come down has come down. Closed restaurants, that's a big one, right, in New York, that restaurant yeah. that you had so many memories of that ah, one day it just wasn't there anymore. Yes, and, you know, and I think when you're a long time in a place, you are accustomed to bumping into yourself at every yeah. corner that you turn. And here in London, I had no memories. I had, I, I, I arrive here as a middle-aged person with no story and every street I would walk along would be, I, I, I would be passing through, if not literally for the first time, sort of effectively for the first time. And, and you know, I just found that a very, very strange situation yeah. to be in. To put yourself um, in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, to willfully have done this, you know, because it's not like moving to a foreign country. It's not like moving to, it's not like I'd moved to Rome and like all of a sudden I'm, oh my God, it's everything is different and I have to learn the language and all those kinds of things. It's not that. It's it's going home in some sense. But there, it was as if there, there might have been another me who had lived their life in these streets and what mm -hmm. would that life have been? Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, sort of encountering my imagined self, as it were, like a, uh, but, and then also encountering the ghosts or memories or traces or for me, imaginative traces of my own family, sort yeah, of yeah. seeing or walking, riding my bike past the house where my father first lived when he was a small child and, not even realizing when I moved to the part of London that I'm in that I was moving, you know, less than a mile from where my father first lived. And I hadn't clocked that until yeah. I was right back here. And it's, you know, so that's very strange to be walking the streets that my father, my grandparents um, moved around in and sort of trying to imagine what their world was and how it meshes with mine. Yeah. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Rebecca Mead after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, 
or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Rebecca Mead. So let's talk a little bit about writing specifically. Uh, How was writing this book different from writing a New Yorker piece, other than the fact that it's, you know, 100 times bigger or whatever the number is? It's very different because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I've worked for The New Yorker for a long time and I know how to do the thing mm. that I do there. Mm. Sometimes I do it better or worse, but I I usually know what to do and how to go about it and how to report a story. I know when I'm writing a New Yorker piece, I'm quite good at holding the structure of a piece in my head. I don't do a lot of... Um, sort of mapping out a story in advance I might I I kind of know where it's going to begin and usually I know where it's going to end and I have a sense of what the movements are going to be but it's never very carefully written out or structured or anything in advance I'm quite intuitive Mm. but I'm also extremely practiced so that's where that's how I can be intuitive Um, with writing something like this I have you know, virtually no experience. My last book was a memoir of sorts. It was uh, called My Life in Middlemarch, and it was about my relationship with the Victorian novel Middlemarch. But it was also a biography of George Eliot in some ways, and a story of the telling of, a story of the writing of that work of fiction, Middlemarch. Mm -hmm. And it was about my reading of that novel Mm -hmm. through many decades. So it was personal, but it had a framework and a structure you know, it lent on Middlemarch. Yeah, yeah. And this book doesn't lean on anything rather like the Houses of London. It is <laughs> standing up by itself or not, you know, on this shifting surface of, uh, you know, underbed of clay. Um, yeah. So it was very nerve wracking because I didn't, I, I had to sort of find what I was doing as I wrote it. I discarded much more of the writing that I did for this book than of anything I've ever written. Huh. I wrote things that then I didn't use, which is very rare for me because I'm quite, um, efficient. you know, quite efficient about that sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. don't waste your time writing things you're not going to use. Um, but I did. And, you know, I, when I write for The New Yorker, I, I often have this, you know, I, I hope you have it too. When you do a thing that you've done a lot of and you have reached a certain level of competency at, you have a certain pleasure in knowing that you can do what you Mm. can do Mm. and with this I was constantly anxious and upset that I (laughs) didn't know what I was doing and didn't know whether I could do what I could do and that's also the reason why I wrote the book Mm. is to give myself something to do that was not just the thing that I already knew how to do there'd be no point in doing that um so it was quite different and it was quite a relief to get back to doing something that I knew how to do once, once I finished the book and got back to writing for The New Yorker. So, uh, Rebecca, well, what were the things that you kind of wrote and discarded? And how did you decide how to do that? It's a terrible violation, isn't it, to tell you the things that I left out of the book. It's like, I left them out because I... Want, but I will give you an example. I wrote about attending a 
March, anti-Brexit March. We, mm. you know, we got here before Brexit had yeah, Brexit had been voted on. It was happening, but it hadn't yet happened. And there was this movement afoot to try to have a second referendum. And I went on a couple of marches, you know, to try to make a statement about that, um, and also just to see the vibe. Um, <laughs> so I wrote about that, and that ultimately was something that I found there was no place for. I didn't want, as I say, to write. I, I don't, I'm, I allude to Brexit in the book. I don't mm-hmm. write, mm-hmm. I don't use the word. I allude to Trump in the book. I do not use his name. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be, I, I, I didn't want the book to be pinned to specific political moments or debates or arguments. I wanted to um, go for something that I hope is more, you know, is, is, is less specific and more more general and more universal maybe. So, I'm curious, why did you write about the anti-Brexit event in the first place? Because I wrote through a lot of experience that I was having mm. um, just to sort of process it and also to figure out what I wanted to hold on to for the book and mm. what I didn't want to hold on to. So, you know, some of it was just like finding finding my way and, you know, I would get seized one one day with describing a wanting to capture a scene or something and then deciding, oh, no, that's not, that's not, that it's the wrong, this is not the place for that. Mm. Um, like I say, this is, it's a, it's my most inefficient book ever. So as you said, you, at a certain point, you returned to writing for The New Yorker and, and I'm now projecting because of the pandemic, uh, you were maybe doing more UK and Europe based stories than you might have done if it hadn't been for the pandemic and traveling had been more possible. But I wonder, do you think if moving to the UK has changed the way you write your New Yorker pieces? That's interesting. I mean, I, you know, in a way, the idea of moving back to the UK was it will give me an an opportunity to uh, write different kinds of pieces, to be based uh, here and to do things that might not have seemed worth flying me across the Atlantic Mm. for. But, uh, you know, you can hop on a train and you're in... Amsterdam, you know, yeah. or you can take a quick flight and you're in Luxembourg. And, you know, for the first year, year and a half that I was here, that was tremendously fun and tremendously exciting to be, you know, I can get to Bologna in the time that it would take me to get to Pittsburgh. There's no argument there, you know. <laughs> um, and so the difficulty of moving to the UK and writing for the New Yorker is a lot of people don't know what it is and you don't it doesn't inspire the same oh the New Yorker when you're asking people if they will talk to you for it or something ah. like that so it's slightly harder to get someone to agree to be profiled for example um mm. which is a bit more of a challenge and then the you know and then of course like all like everybody I've had the challenges of how to work when you know, for many, many months, I couldn't go anywhere yeah. and I couldn't see anybody in person. And how do you, what do you do? So I had to figure out different ways of writing stories and reporting different kinds of stories, which, you know, also was, you know, was an interesting challenge at this point in my career. I wouldn't have wished for a yeah. pandemic, but it made me have to think about, you know, how do you do this when you can't go anywhere or talk to anyone? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you how I think how I see your stories sometimes slightly differently and you can tell me what you think. Obviously not all of them, as you say, every story is different, but I just think of one story that I just thought was so fantastic. The one about the detectorists, um, you know, who found what a hoard of treasure, 
haven't mm, reread Viking it. Treasure, yeah. Viking Treasure. And to me, that story had such nuance about kind of class distinctions in Britain, you know, which is, I think in the book you called a, mi- a miasma, um, you know, which is yeah. a great way of putting it. It's something that when you're in Britain, it's inescapable. It's there. It's very difficult to explain it to people from outside the UK or even actually for people who maybe from a different background or whatever. But, you know, it's just it's an endless complication in Britain. And I just felt like that story had such a nuanced representation of it, which maybe American readers would never recognize. But I sure saw it. And I wondered, like, were you aware of that? Is that just me? What's your response? Thank you very much for noticing that. I'm glad you did. I'm glad, I'm, and thank you for noticing that story, which in fact was the perfect pandemic story because it was completely reported through looking at documents, talking to lawyers over Zoom. I didn't, you know, looking at Google Maps. The whole thing was done without me leaving the chair I'm sitting on <laughs> talking to you now, and except to lie on the couch and read <laughs> endless books about Vikings which was really fantastic mm. and I loved doing that piece and and it broadened my I'd, I'd never written that kind of a story before that kind of uh you know sort of yarn of like lost treasure and discovery and things it was really really fun um but in terms of the class stuff yes I think that um it is very easy one moves to Britain, one moves from Britain to America and becomes classless because you're just British. Right. And that's a, more or less, especially in New York, especially in the media business, a good thing to be. Yeah. It's a, it, yeah. it, it, it's like I say, in it's the like book, wearing it's glasses like, and people think you're smarter. It's the same, yeah. exactly the same effect. If you're British and wear glasses, my God, you're like twice as smart as you were when you left. It's true. And if you're also smart as you are, June, <laughs> oh. then you've got the triple whammy there. So, it, you know, coming back to the UK and being re-immersed in that, as you say, the sort of omnipresent consciousness of class that had I spent the last 30 years in it I think it might have made my head explode Mm -hmm. I have you know sufficient distance on it I hope or have some distance on it I hope from having been away for such a long time and being you know like it or not an American as well as being Mm -hmm. a British person at this point and I feel very strongly having you know both those uh making both those claims yeah so I do think that those questions come up in writing about British life in one way or another. And there are other stories I've done. Um, For example, I wrote a piece about the Cern Abbas giant, which is a hill figure painted, not painted, but carved into a hillside in the south of England Mm -hmm. with an enormous penis. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what its history is or nobody knew what its history was. And, um, you know, the sort of class ramifications around, you know, well, who's the National Trust to tell us we Mm -hmm. can't go Mm -hmm. on to the the giant we've been on the people have been going on to the giant for hundreds of years you know don't tell us what we can and can't do all of that stuff is is interesting and you know all of it does um i hope you know feeds into different pieces in in different ways and yeah i i guess that that's one of the things of being a a, a british person displaced and then returned has has allowed me to be yeah there are quite a few Brits working in journalism in the US, especially perhaps in New York, and not as many Americans working in the UK. And I think, (laughs) I think, and I know the styles of journalism are quite different. How do you see that, especially since your return? 
I think British, the tr- sort of traditionally, British journalists think of American journalists as taking themselves terribly seriously. I mean, the institution of the fact checker mm. is something that British journalists, you know, don't understand or, you know, regard with scorn or whatever. Um, I think to a certain extent that has changed because I think that institutions like the New Yorker have become known thanks to you know, being disseminated on the web. Yeah. And the, the the idea of long-form journalism has, you know, flourished here and there are lots of aspiring um, long-form journalists of British-based and British origin who, mm. who take themselves at least as seriously as we do. And <laughs> uh, there's also, though, there's this difference, isn't there, of, um, you know, in the States, journalism is a profession that at least when you and I started was quite respectable, less so <laughs> these days, maybe. Yeah. And I think in in the UK, it's always been a bit more of a rough and ready trade and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the, the slightly more get on with it and get on to the next thing. Yeah. But those are, the, in some ways, you know, things have changed so much that on both sides that I, I, I'm not quite sure how, how well those binaries stand up anymore. Right. So I recently read Red Comet, which is Heather Clark's biography of Sylvia Plath. And one of the things that really struck me, because it was a very traumatic adjustment for Sylvia Plath when she first moved to England, and then she decided to stay, was how much crappier things used to be in Britain. I mean, World (laughs) War II was felt harder and for much, much longer in Britain than in the US. You know, the sanitation was bad, the food was bad, nobody had any heat in their houses. That's not really true anymore although people do keep their houses really cold but perhaps and and I you know I haven't lived in Britain for 35 years so I want you to tell me how do you find the UK as being physically different from the US these days well I am constantly you know you'll notice I'm wearing a nice warm sweater (laughs) and um and I think that that's an important thing to do although I do also have my heating on and uh uh and boy, do we need it. Um, <laughs> more for the damp than for the cold. It's not as cold here as it is there, but Dampness. you know how it is. I do. Um, I'm from Manchester. I know about damp. <laughs> um, you know, you ask about how Britain has changed. You know, I grew up in a place that was extremely provincial. And so that was my England, was, mm-hmm. you know, a provincial seaside town surrounded by countryside, although not, I wasn't living in the countryside, I was living in a rather grotty seaside town. Uh, you know, and that was the environment from which I very much wanted to leave and get to a city, and ultimately that city was New York. Mm. But I've returned to the city, um, to London, and um, I'm struck by, you know, as I think a lot of people are, about how profoundly cosmopolitan London is and has become even more so since... I left, not that I knew it well before I left. Mm -hmm. But, you know, New York feels provincial in lots of ways compared to to London, which feels like such an international and cosmopolitan city. And I get a tremendous thrill uh, walking along the the banks of the Thames, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the centre of London um, with the buildings along the sides of the South Bank and the House of Parliament and all of that along the along the river is stunning and beautiful and the skies are amazing in London. But one of the things that moves me about that scene and that location is the sense of the Thames as this 
you know, ribbon that connects to the rest of the world, mm. you know, for good and ill in many, many times in Britain's history. But it doesn't feel insular. It feels connected and vital and that there's this flowing in and out with the rest of the world. And, you know, the pandemic made that feel a lot less true. Mm. You know, it, re- it reminded us that this is an island and we're stuck on it. And that was pretty terrible. But the close, the proximity of London to the rest of Europe and to the world beyond and the ways in which those places have flowed into London and made it into the vibrant and cosmopolitan place that it is, is very, very exciting to me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate uh, your talking about Homeland, which is a really interesting book that I hope people will check out. Thank you for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was such a fascinating conversation with Rebecca. And I loved your question about how Rebecca decided that this would ultimately be a book after writing an article about sort of the same process. I'm curious how you answer that question in your own work. How do you decide what merits one episode of a podcast or its own series, or even after you do one episode, if you can spin it out into something bigger? This is a question that is especially hard to think about when you're used to writing for the web, Mm -hmm. where there are no space limits. Although, to be very clear, there are definitely attention limits on the part of the readers or (laughs) listeners and on how much time editors have to devote to making those words readable or to making it something that people want to listen to. So I think the question should always be, what's the quickest way to tell this story? Mm. And whether it's a written piece or a podcast, you never want people to feel that you're wasting their time, which is why I'm going to end my answer right there. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, Rebecca also speaks so eloquently about her memories, which I find very impressive because I feel like that's always something that's hard to do without getting into purple prose or something Mm. that's too flowery or otherwise failing to properly convey the sense memory that you're trying to evoke for somebody else. Um, Do you think that there's a key to doing that successfully if there is one at all and it's not just magic and alchemy? Yeah, I also find that very interesting, especially when she talked about this being an inefficient book to write, Mm -hmm. largely because she couldn't predict its final shape. And I think that's another way of saying that it was hard for her to find the key or the method for it. And I understand it. You know, she first had to recognize the emotions she was feeling. She had to write them out. And then she sometimes had to discard those observations if they seemed too personal, or she might put it insufficiently universal. And in a case like this, where you're writing about something that you've experienced, I just think that inefficiency is inevitable. (laughs) You have to sit with your feelings for a little while and see what resonates and what stays with you, right? Yeah. And to that end, I found it so funny that someone as accomplished and seemingly assured, as Rebecca (laughs) said at one point, I don't know what I'm doing with regard to writing her book. Um, She talks about knowing what a New Yorker piece is going to be because she's so practiced at it because she has to do it so much. Mm. How do you feel out when you're experienced enough to know how to do something well, if that limit even exists for you or for some of our listeners? And how do you kind of keep going even when you think you don't know what you're doing? Yeah, I I guess here I'm going to play the age card and say that as you get older, 
you start to kind of recognize certain feelings that come up as you're doing a task, mm -hmm. you know, and that could be, oh, yeah, I always feel a bit lost at this stage or hello, smugness. I knew you'd show up on the day that I pounded out 2000 words <laughs> <laughs> or at least I know I go through those stages. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, I think there's also a similar sense of recognition when you don't have a familiar script to follow. Yeah. Like when I was working on my book proposal, there were a couple of days where I had just full on freakouts, you know, where I just felt, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. I'm going to fail at this. And that did not feel good. But at the same time, at a certain point, once I'd calmed down, I remembered that I had had very similar freakouts years ago or maybe even decades ago when I was first figuring out how to write, you know, 800 word articles. Mm -hmm. And For the record, I hate that uncomfortable feeling when you don't know how to get from where you are to where you need to get to. It's not a pleasant feeling. It's like when you start a new job and you have to figure out how things work somewhere else. It's not fun. But after a certain number of times of going through that, you do start to realize, yeah, it's not fun, but I know how to do this. And when I achieve it, I will feel better. So mm -hmm. I think a little bit it's gaining confidence that you can do <laughs> Can you recall like the specific moment when you thought like, oh, I'm good at this now for any of the things that you've done, whether it's writing or podcast or books? I would say it doesn't always work. And so maybe mm -hmm. I've, maybe I'm, I, I just need to remember this. And so I've, I've kind of pinned it somewhere in my brain, <laughs> but I'm sure you're familiar where, you know, it's a big event, let's say the Oscars and something happened, you know, everybody's watching Mm -hmm. We also all know that the life cycle for a story about that is approximately, <laughs> what, four hours? Yeah. And so you've got to write quickly. And if you are, you know, if, if you don't have that confidence, if you don't know what you're doing, you can just spiral. And you yeah. have to stop the spiral, like commit to the idea. Maybe you'll regret it the next day. <laughs> uh, but you just have to go with it. Um, and I think I can think back on occasions like that where the first time I had to do it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is impossible. And then on like the fifth time, you're like, this is not going to be the best thing I've ever written. Right, but right. I'm going to write it. It does feel like that connects to a lot of the stuff that we talk about with the creative process, where after a certain point, it's like, you just need to get it out. It doesn't have yeah. to be perfect when people yeah. see it. Totally. Um, one of the other parts of your conversation with Rebecca that I found so fun was that you asked Rebecca to explain the difference between American and British journalism. Mm. And I wanted to pose the same question to you and see if your answer was different, similar, et cetera. Yeah. I have to be really careful here because mm -hmm. I'm very aware that I haven't lived in Britain since the 1980s. And I think when you emigrate, it's very common to fix the place you left behind just as it was when you departed. Mm -hmm. There's a really fantastic evocation of this in um, Gorinda Chada's 1993 movie, Baji on the Beach. I love her. Yes. And that's a, it's just such a good scene. In that case, it's with a an Indian woman, uh, with a woman who's... who came to Britain from India and then some British-born Indians who are just like, what are you talking about, you know? But, um, <laughs> so you can treat these with a pinch of salt, but I do think that the highbrow arts coverage and TV documentary journalism are stronger in the UK. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I should just say more serious. Maybe I don't know if they're mm -hmm. stronger. Um, and I have to say, this is probably something that most people are aware of, but I'm always surprised by how aggressive the questioning 
of politicians is on radio and TV in Britain. And maybe that's because politicians really don't do tough interviews on mm. radio and TV in the US. And I also have to say, I really don't like those aggro interviews, <laughs> but they're certainly different. Yeah, it's very, very different in that respect. Yeah. I, it makes me uncomfortable, but sometimes yes. I'm like, they should have to answer these questions. So I know, I go back and forth and then it, it's, yeah. I have that feeling and then I'm like, who the hell are you to be asking, <laughs> you know, like, remi- remember your position, please, which like, yeah. where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Um, And with that in mind, do you think that your attitude towards journalism has changed since moving? Granted, you point out it's been a while since you first came to the U.S. So maybe your attitude, your um, attitude isn't the right word, but sense of journalism was still Mm. forming, I guess, or not completely solidified. But I'm curious how you'd answer that. What I think is actually the big thing is that the playfulness of British journalism has become more of a thing over here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that American journalistic institutions have loosened up a lot, I think, especially of the New York Times, which, you know, until a few years ago, they would refer to people as, you'd refer to you as like Ms. Han. Like, they wouldn't <laughs> do that now. Like, but that wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. And... You know, last week, for example, a lot of people tweeted about this video that the Times published where um, Jonathan Pye was explaining the Boris Johnson scandal for Americans. Mm -hmm. Boris comes from a long succession of posh, upper-class, bumbling idiots who are destined for greatness only because no one has ever or will ever tell them they're not. It was sweary and opinionated. And I mean, it was very funny. I loved it although i kind of wish they'd know okay now do the u.s um <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i uh, real uh, glass house and exactly yeah, yeah yeah glass houses big time but i just can't imagine the new york times even thinking about publishing that mm-hmm. as little as 10 years ago or maybe even five years ago i mean yeah. slate would have but not the <laughs> new york times and so that is a big change i think yeah, it's definitely interesting to watch the way that media has changed for better and worse in that respect. Yeah, yeah. That's our show for this week. And if you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and then you'll never miss an episode. And now let me tell you how great a Slate Plus membership is. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all their articles on Slate.com, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It. Thank you to this week's guest, Rebecca Mead, and thanks, as always, to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with our very own Isaac Butler. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.